Amen. Well, this morning, uh, Pastor Kempis had asked me if uh, I would uh, be able to preach a message related to, to missions, particularly how to be motivated for missions. And so, Pastor Kempis, in submission to your desire, the title of the message today is Motivated for Missions. And we're going to be in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, which Pastor Alex read to us a moment ago. Now, before we get started, when we say missions, it's important to understand what do we mean by that? What do we mean by missions? Because there's a lot of people and a lot of agencies that are raising support for work that they are doing around the world, but that does not necessarily mean they are doing missions work or that they are missionaries. Embedded in the word missionary is the idea of mission. That's at its root. And a missionary is simply a person who is sent on a mission. And when we talk about Christian missionaries, they are sent on the mission that Jesus gave us. The mission in Matthew 28, which is called the Great Commission, right? And what was the focus of that Great Commission? To make disciples of all the nations, right? And so in one sense, we could say that every believer is a missionary of sorts. We're all to be involved in disciple making, right? Am I right about that? Yes, it's to some capacity. But when we talk about missionary, that's taken on a certain focus in our culture. We're usually talking about someone who is focused on making disciples for all the nations on that part. Someone who's sent out by the church to, in some way, be involved in the disciple-making process. So again, a, a missionary is not just somebody who's being supported to live overseas to help people. Rather, they are being supported, a Christian missionary, to be part of the process of making disciples of all the nations. And, and that could be through evangelism or through church planting or through uh, supporting the church through training ministry like the Expositors Academy or through a gospel-centered mercy ministry or Bible translation or things of that sort. Now, when did the Christian missionary movement begin? When did it start? Actually, not long after Pentecost. And it started in a way that we don't often think about or realize. It didn't start through a church committee gathering together to make a decision to send out missionaries. It, it didn't start because someone suddenly felt inspired to leave Jerusalem to go to foreign lands. It didn't begin with a missions conference or a TMAI symposium. Actually, what launched the missions movement in the early church was an execution. The execution of Stephen, the first Christian martyr. Luke notes this in Acts chapter 1, when after Stephen was stoned to death for proclaiming the Lord Jesus Christ and the fact that the people had crucified him. And Luke, uh, Luke writes in eight, chapter 8 verse 1 of Acts, Saul was in hearty agreement with putting him to death. And on that day, a great persecution began against the church in Jerusalem. And they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria. And those who had been scattered went about preaching the word. Luke makes an interesting observation here about Saul. And I'll talk about that a little bit later. But, but notice here that Stephen's death did not bring about the intended result. At least the result of those who killed him, what they desired. Notice it says that, that, that they were scattered from Jerusalem. But as they were scattered, they went out proclaiming the word, proclaiming the gospel. And so we could say that the missions movement was really born out of persecution. It started from difficulty, from suffering, and in this case, death. And that is certainly what we have seen over 
the history of many missionaries who have gone out, the hardship and the difficulties they have suffered and continue to suffer. I, I had just read a few months ago, finished reading a biography on John G. Patton. Very interesting and moving um, uh, story of that man. He was a 19th century Scottish missionary who went to the island of Tanna, which is in a group of islands northeast of Australia known as, uh, in present-day, Vanuatu. And the natives of that um, area were savage cannibals. But when Patton arrived, he was not eaten, as many had feared he would be, but he suffered another tragedy, actually a, a greater tragedy. For when he moved there, he unwittingly built his uh, home for his wife and his newborn uh, in an area that was highly susceptible to malaria. As a result, just a few months after they arrived, his wife contracted malaria and died. And then not long after that, their three-month-old son followed her. Patton was overwhelmed with grief and spent many nights at their graves, not just in sorrow, but actually protecting them from being um, eaten by the cannibals there. And if you go through his life, there's many countless battles that he uh, endured, many attempts on his own life. He, he suffered from malaria over a dozen times during his ministry there. He encountered many hardships. He faced rejection and animosity from the local uh, natives there suffered emotionally from the loss of his family, and he was even criticized by those back in Scotland that they blamed him for the death of his wife and his child. He suffered tremendously. And he's not alone in that. The many who came before and the many missionaries who came after John Patton have also suffered greatly. In fact, the pioneer of missions, the Apostle Paul himself, went through a tremendous amount of suffering and hardship. In fact, he gives us his own account in the book of 2 Corinthians chapter 11. I know many of us are familiar with it, but let me just read again his own personal testimony of what he went through in bringing the gospel to the Gentiles. Five times I received from the Jews 39 lashes. This is 2 Corinthians 11. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day I have spent in the deep. I've been on frequent journeys and dangers from rivers, dangers from robbers, dangers from my countrymen, dangers from the Gentiles, dangers in the city, dangers in the wilderness, dangers on the sea. Do you get the point? Dangers among false brethren. I've been in labor and hardship through many sleepless nights and hunger and thirst, often without food and cold and exposure. And apart from such things, there is the external pressure on me of concern for all the churches. It's quite a list. And actually, that's not all. He also endured much, not only rejection, but accusations. Those who said, oh, Paul, he's just in it for the money. He's in it for the fame. He's, he's in it for the position. He's no apostle. Come on. And in fact, that is exactly the situation that was going on in Corinth. So-called false apostles had come in and they were trying to convince the people that you shouldn't listen to this guy. He's in it for himself. He's trying to take advantage of you. And that is what spawned this letter to the Corinthians. It's a very personal letter, the second letter of the Corinthians. Paul, here as we saw an example of, shares his heart and what he has endured and gone through. And he, he's doing that not to draw attention to himself, not to bring uh, accolades and praise to himself, but he shares what happened in his life because he doesn't want them to listen to what these other men were saying because he did not want the message of the gospel that he preached to be undermined. And so Paul writes this letter, really a letter that's a defense of his apostleship. 
And again, a defense of that so that the message that he had proclaimed to them would not be ignored or dismissed because of these accusations against him. And that's what most concerned Paul, that the message of the gospel he preached would never be undermined or dismissed, but believed. And so as we come to this fifth chapter in 2 Corinthians, Paul wants them to know that the, despite what they've been told, he wants them to hear directly what his motivations for the ministry were. And in this passage, Paul makes clear, he gives three declarations really in verses 11 through 21 of chapter 5. Three declarations of what motivated him to be a missionary. What motivated him to endure despite all of the suffering and difficulty and trials what it was that kept him going. And that from, as we look at his testimony, we can glean for ourselves the proper biblical motivations for missions. The first declaration that he makes is in verse 11 when he says, knowing the fear of the Lord, we persuade men. The second declaration he gives in verse 14 when he says, the love of Christ controls us. And then the third declaration we see that motivated Paul for missions is in verse 20, When he says, therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ as though God was making an appeal through us. And again, it's from these three statements that we see what motivated Paul to be a missionary. Let's consider his first declaration in verses 11 to 13. And that is what motivated Paul firstly to missions was a reverence for Christ. A reverence for Christ. Look with me at verse 11. Paul says there, therefore, knowing the fear of the Lord, we persuade men, but we are manifest to God, and I hope that we are made manifest also in your consciences. We are not again commending ourselves to you, but are giving you an occasion to be proud of us, so that you will have an answer for those who take pride in appearance and not in heart. For if we are beside ourselves, it is for God. If we are of sound mind, it is for you. I won't be able to go through all the details of that, but I want us to focus on the key point that he was making. And as good Bible students, understanding that context is king, we need to first consider that word, therefore, which begins verse 11, right? Because that tells us that what he is saying here is connected to something he has just said, right? And that something that he has just said is found in verse 10. After expressing his desire to please the Lord while on earth in the first few verses of chapter 5, he comes to verse 10 and he says this, For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so that each one may be recompensed for his deeds in the body, according to what he has done, whether good or bad. Therefore, knowing the fear of the Lord, we persuade men. You see, as Paul reflects upon the fact that he will stand before the Lord Jesus Christ at the judgment seat, the Bema seat, he recognizes that he's going to answer for what he has done on this earth. And so he says, therefore, as I reflect on that, Knowing the fear of the Lord, and here Lord is a reference to Christ. That's who he's spoken of in verse 10. Fearing Christ, we persuade men. That word persuade is an important word. It's this idea of of convince. It's this idea of appeal to, win over, seek the favor of. Here, here Paul is, is describing what uh, he's driven to, to convince others of something. And, and we see in Luke, many times, Luke uses this same word, persuade, when he speaks of Paul's evangelistic efforts. In Acts 18, verse 4, when Paul was first in Corinth, Luke records these words, 
Paul was reasoning in the synagogue every Sabbath, trying to persuade Jews and Greeks. Or again in Ephesus, in Acts chapter 19, it says in verse 8 that he was continually speaking out boldly for three months, reasoning and persuading them about the kingdom of God. Or again in Acts chapter 26, when uh, King Herod, when he gave his testimony before King Herod, King Herod uh, Agrippa made an interesting response. He said, in a short time, you will persuade me to be a Christian. And then at the end of the book of Acts, when Paul is in house imprisonment in Rome and people are coming to visit him, it says in Acts 28, verse 23, that he was explaining to them by solemnly testifying about the kingdom of God and trying to persuade them concerning Jesus from both the law and Moses and the prophets. And so when we see here, it says Paul was, we persuade men. I think the main emphasis is not just persuading them as to his apostolic integrity, but his main emphasis is we are persuading them to believe in the gospel. To believe that the Lord Jesus Christ is the one who has come to seek and save the lost, who has sacrificed himself so that we might come to know him. But what was it that motivated him to persuade Again, go to that phrase right before. Therefore, knowing the fear of the Lord, we persuade men. Again, why was Paul willing to endure hardship? Why was Paul willing to, you know, you'd think after the first beating, he'd go, you know, I don't know about this. But then a second one, and a third one, and a fourth one, and a fifth one. But he kept going. He pressed on. And all the danger and the difficulty, every place he went, he would, they would run him out of town. And yet he kept going. Why? Well, the first thing he says in verse 11 is knowing the fear of the Lord. The fear of Christ. It was that which caused him and moved him to continue going and pressing on. But what does that mean? Does that mean he was living in terror? That he was afraid at every corner Jesus was going to come around and whack him? That he was going to receive these harsh consequences if he didn't keep going? That he better share the gospel or else their punishment was coming? No, that's not it. Again, we have to remember verse 10 when it talks about the judgment seat of Christ, the Bema seat, that is a seat of reward for his children. So the, the tone here is not one of terror or cowering. It's this idea of reverential awe, of a recognition of who the Lord Jesus Christ is, the utter holiness and transcendence and sovereignty of the Son of God, and that one day he would stand before him. Moses captures this idea of the fear of the Lord well, I think, in Deuteronomy chapter 10. Let me read it to you in verse 12. When he's speaking to the Israelites, he says, Now, Israel, what does the Lord your God require from you but to fear the Lord your God? And then listen to how he describes it. To walk in all his ways, to love him, And serve him with all your heart and with all your soul and to keep his commandments for your good. Now, you get do you get the idea there? It's this cowering fear. No, it's a it's a relational reverence. I like how Charles Bridges, the 19th century theologian, described it when he said the fear of the Lord is that affectionate reverence by which the child of God bends himself humbly and carefully to his father's law. I like that. The fear of the Lord is an affectionate reverence. I think that's a great way to summarize it. It really captures the idea. Affectionate tells us it's, it's out of relationship. But reverence reminds us that it's a relationship rooted in awe and respect and honor and worship. Affectionate reverence. 
And that's what Paul emphasizes here as he, he pictures himself standing before the Bema seat of Christ, standing before the Lord Jesus, answering for how he used the time he was given on this earth. And Paul could not fathom standing before Christ and saying he had squandered the time he was given. And saying that, yeah, Lord, I know about this mission you sent me on, but, but, but you know, I, I just, as I was in Greece, I really loved the Greek Isles, and I, I just couldn't help myself. I had, to, I had to go to Santorini and walk around along the, the beaches there. No, that's not it at all. He recognized he was given a mission by the Lord of the universe, and he was going to carry it out. And, you know, I think we so often overlook the fact that in the Great Commission... It was not just the command to make disciples. That certainly is the core of the Great Commission. But do you remember what it was that Jesus said right before that? We often forget that. We often forget that, as Jesus said, the first part of the Great Commission is what? All authority has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples. What is it that Jesus draws our attention to in the Great Commission that this is, yes, a command from Jesus, but it's a command from Jesus, the one who has all authority in this universe, the sovereign Lord of creation, the one that we answer to, the ruler of all nature, as the hymn puts it. And this is what was on the forefront of Paul's mind. Certainly he had an affectionate reverence for the Lord Jesus Christ, but it was an affectionate reverence for the Lord Jesus Christ. He understood Jesus was not just a Savior to appreciate, but a Master to be obeyed. Yes, Jesus is a friend of sinners. Yes, He is referred to as in Scripture as our brother. Yes, we are co-heirs with Christ, as Ian mentioned earlier. Yes, we, He is the Lamb of God, but we must not forget that He is our Master. He is our Lord. What was it that Thomas said when he came to the realization that the risen man, that the man before him in that upper room was the risen Lord Jesus Christ? What did he say? My Lord and my God. Or Paul in 1 Corinthians 12, he says, we call Jesus Lord or Master by the Spirit of God. Or Jude, verse 4, says that Jesus is our only Master and Lord. We often will emphasize the Savior part, which is true, but, but minimize the Lord part, that He is our Master. We answer to Him. We are His servants, or more correctly, His doulos, His, his slaves. We've been bought with a price. We were in slavery to sin and Satan in the world, and Jesus bought us out of that to be His slaves, His servants. He's our Master. It's not like, okay, you're free now. Do whatever you want. No, it's, I bought you with my own blood. You are mine. And he's a good master. But he's still our master. We exist to lift up his name, not ours. We exist to glorify him and not ourselves, right? We exist to live for him and not for us. And that's exactly what Paul says a few verses later in 2 Corinthians 5 that we should no longer live for ourselves, but for him who died and rose again on our behalf. Indeed, Paul was motivated for missions out of a reverence for Christ as his master. And so we have to ask ourselves the question, how about us? How about you? 
What is the level of your commitment to Christ's mission here and abroad? Do you see the Great Commission as a strategy to be considered or a command to be obeyed? Are you motivated to make disciples because the King has commissioned you to do so? Do you have a desire to see Christ exalted so much to the extent that, to the extent that you will send or, or support those who are going abroad and even locally to make disciples? How much are you invested in the Great Commission, both here and abroad? We need to consider our brother Paul's example here. And his motivation for missions was out of reverence for Christ. Now, in the rest of verses 11 to 13, I, I don't really have time to go through that, but essentially there what he is telling them is he has shown them and expressed to them this motivation because he wants them to understand that, that God knows his true motives and he's hoping that they will as well so that they will not listen to those who had been accusing him falsely. And so he expresses this first motivation that, look, I'm not motivated by anything those guys are saying. I'm motivated out of reverence for Christ. And then secondly, verse 14, I'm motivated because of the love of Christ. Look there with me at verse 14. For the love of Christ controls us, having concluded this, that one died for all, therefore all died. And he died for all, so that they who might live, or live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who died and rose again on their behalf. Therefore, from now on, we recognize no one according to the flesh, even though we have known Christ according to the flesh, yet now we know him in this way no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creature. The old things passed away. Behold, new things have come. Paul begins here with this second declaration, right? He says, for the love of Christ controls us. And again, he's referring here not to his love for Christ, which he had, but here he's speaking of Christ's love for him, for us. And we know that this served as a motivation for missions because of the next thing he says, the love of Christ controls us. It controls us. That's, that's a word that, that conveys the idea of, of, of pressure, of a, a compelling, of a, of a focusing or a constraining. It's like, a, like the walls of a canal that, that drive and focus the water down the path that it directs. Paul uses it here to convey this idea of pressure, of being compelled. But it's not a negative compelling. It's not, like, again, like Jesus has you know, got a stick hanging over Paul's head, ready to whack him if he doesn't do what he's supposed to do. That's not it at all. It's like a, a parent compelled to care for their child. You don't have to tell a parent, hey, you, you better do this. We just visited Mark and Crystal Palmerville yesterday. Uh, they just had twins about a month ago. And man, that's hard. It's hard with one kid. Imagine two at one time and imagine two right out of the gate. And so they were talking about, yeah, we're just not sleeping much. And But you know, it wasn't like we had to go over there and Tina and I were there. Okay, but you better just take care of these kids. You know, we didn't have to exhort them. They felt that pressure because they wanted to. And it's that idea here. Paul was compelled, but he was compelled like, a, like from a parent to, for a child or like a teammate for his team. There's a compelling to work hard for the sake of the rest of the team. And what is it that the love of Christ compelled him to do? Look at verse 16. This is very interesting the way he phrases this. 
he says we, and, and by we, he's referring to himself, but this is sort of a, of a self-deprecating way, a humble way to do it. He's really saying, referring to himself. He says, we, or, or I, recognize no one according to the flesh, even though we have known Christ according to the flesh, yet now we know him in this way no longer. Well, what does that mean? Well, what he's saying here is that he used to look at Jesus through earthly eyes. He used to see Jesus as some charlatan, as a, as a blasphemer, as a false messiah. Right? In fact, so much so, he went around persecuting anybody who would be a follower of him. But then after his conversion, he no longer saw Jesus that way, according to the flesh. He saw him differently. He saw him through spiritual eyes. He saw him correctly. And notice he said the same thing happened to him regarding people. This is very important. We see this. He does not see people anymore according to the flesh. He sees them and understands them as spiritual, in a spiritual way, as eternal souls. He's looking at them through the eyes of eternity. Now think about this for a minute. This is Paul, the super Pharisee. This is the one who abided by every little jot and tittle of the law. But in a wrong way, of course. This is the guy who would enforce the law that if you were going to a house of a Gentile, that was against the law and you deserve punishment. This was a guy who would not be seen around Gentiles. I mean, think about the irony here. This is the very same guy who was responsible for beginning the missionary movement through the death of Stephen. And now he is the chief missionary of that movement. Isn't God amazing? It's incredible. Now he who hated anyone who was not a Jew like him and after went after anybody who would say differently, this is the very one now who was going amongst the Gentiles and proclaiming the gospel. It's an incredible transformation. And it happened through his conversion as now he sees people differently. He's compelled by Christ's love for him to be on a path that would bring the gospel to those who need it, even to the Gentiles. And beloved, if we are to be compelled in the same way, we really need to understand what Paul understood. What was it that brought about this complete transformation in his thinking? Look again with me at verse 11. He says, The love of Christ compels us. Why? He says, Having concluded... Or because of the fact that one died for all. And then verse 15. He died for all. Verse 15 again. For him who died and rose again on their behalf. Do you see what he's emphasizing here? For all. He died for all. He died on their behalf. He's talking here about substitutionary atonement. He's talking here about the fact that Jesus Christ, the Son of God, who became a man, took upon himself the punishment of all the elect. Those who put their faith in Christ, the punishment for sin that you and I deserved, he took upon himself. I'm reminded of what Jesus said in John 15, greater love has no one than this, than he who what? Lay down his life for his friends. And in that passage, Jesus said to his disciples, I call you friends. How great is such a love when the one laying down his life is the Holy One of God. Romans 5, 6. We just sang about this a few minutes ago. While we were still helpless at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. That's us. 
and that God demonstrates His own love for us, and that while we were yet lovable, beautiful, wonderful people, no, while we were yet sinners, while we were yet rebels against His Father, while we were yet those who opposed Christ, His enemies, now seated at His table, To think that Jesus would come and die for the likes of you and me. (laughs) Let's say you'd been in a car accident. And uh, your kidneys were punctured. Someone rescued rescued you from the burning car. And in the midst of that rescue had gotten injured himself and ended up dying. But your life was saved. Certainly you would... Be appreciative of that, right? Certainly you would do anything you you could for him and his family out of appreciation, right? We would do that. Now think of this. What if that same person who saved your life, you ran over his child and killed him in that accident, and he still came and got you? Reminds me of Elizabeth Elliot. I think many of us are familiar with Jim Elliot, right, who uh, in the 50s went to Ecuador And the moment he landed on the beach was speared through by the natives there, the cannibals there. Um, Elizabeth Elizabeth Elliot, they'd been married, I think, what, a year or two? Had a 10-month-old daughter. You know what she did? She went back to that very same tribe. Why? To bring an army with her? To shoot them all down? No, she went back there to carry on the work of her husband. She lived and served among the very people who had taken his life. That's an incredible act of love, isn't it? But there's a far greater one. When the perfect, holy, sinless, just, sovereign Son of God hung on a tree for his enemies. When he bore the full wrath of God in our place, that was the greatest expression of love this world has ever seen. The love of Christ compels us. Amen? And what makes, what makes it even more compelling is not just the salvation that we experienced and are given, but the fact that through that salvation, our hearts are changed and transformed. We're, we're given a, a new direction, a new purpose, a new life, a new set of desires. In fact, Paul notes here, verse 15, he died for all so that, purpose statement, so that they who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who died and rose again on their behalf. And then verse 17, that wonderful verse, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, what does it say? He is a new creature. Old things have passed away, all things become new. You know what he's saying there? When, when, when we come to Christ, everything has changed, you see. Everything is different. We no longer live for ourselves. But as we saw earlier, right, we have a new master now. And we are to live for him. He's given us a new heart, a new heart that desires to live for that master. Yes, we battle with sin. Yes, we battle with temptation. Satan is still running amok, making things difficult. But we have intrinsically been changed pastor kempis you, you mentioned this last week that we are we're compelled to obey we long to obey it's it's instinctual and the idea here and listen to me carefully the idea here is not just obedience in general 
Again, as good students of the Bible, we recognize what is the context here? He's not just talking about obedience to Christ in general, which is true, but specifically in obedience to Christ and carrying out his mission. That is that we instinctively are, we're a new creature, and as a new creature, we are compelled. We are compelled to live out Christ's purpose on this earth, not our own. So looking back at verse 16, we should now, as as new creatures, be looking at people differently. Like what happened with Paul. We too should not be looking at people according to the flesh, through earthly eyes, but through heavenly ones. Let me ask you, is that how you see people around you? Is that how you see those in our Jerusalem, in our Samaria, in our ends of the earth? You know, when I'm out with Bree, um, I'm acutely aware of how people look at her. I see the looks of curiosity. I see the puzzling looks as they're looking at her deformed body. And I asked her if I could share this. She gave me permission. I see the puzzled looks, the confused stares. And and those bother me. They bother my wife. But do you know what bothers me more? When they look at her with disdain. When they look at her as if she's some abnormal creature. And I think we can do that in a spiritual sense with others who are not like us. Oh, those liberals. I can't stand them. All those criminals. They're getting the consequences they deserve. Just let them rot there. All those foreigners, let them, let them stay away. They can stay where they belong. All those Democrats, all those Republicans, all those socialists, all those atheists, those agnostics, those Muslims. You know, we put people in all these categories, but there's really only two that matter. Brothers and sisters, it's saved or unsaved. That's it. It's not skin color, it's not culture, it's not land of birth, it's not vocation or intelligence or ability or wealth or position or philosophy or even religious identification. Brothers and sisters, it's saved or unsaved, lost or found, eternal life or eternal death. That's all that matters. And that's what Paul realized. But some of the Facebook posts I see from those who say they are Christians as they respond to the unsaved on various issues, political issues, moral issues, it grieves me. Not in the disagreeing, but in how they disagree. People are not the enemy, beloved. They are the mission field. Be careful. The love of Christ should compel you. A reverence for Christ should compel you. You should see them not according to the flesh anymore. Praise God, he brought someone in my life that didn't look at me according to the flesh, this, this drunken, immoral jerk, who he could have just said, oh, that guy's beyond it. He didn't. And it's the same for you. The love of Christ compels us not to look at people in judgment, but to be burdened for their soul. It compels us not to live for what we want, According to our desires, but it compels us to live for him. Him who gave himself up, he gave up everything. The son of God to become a man. 
And then to suffer the way he suffered. And then again, it wasn't just death on a cross. It was the taking on himself the full wrath of God. And you know what? Paul doesn't stop there. He gives us a third motivation. We find it in verses 18 to 21. Look with me there in verse 18. He says, Now all these things are from, from God who reconciled us to Himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation, namely that God was in Christ reconciling the world to Himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and He has committed to us the word of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ as though God were making an appeal through us. We beg you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. He made Him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of God in Him. Now, did anything stick out to you in those four verses? Did you see anything repeated or emphasized? There's a word, right? Reconciliation, or variations of it, reconciled, reconciling, right? Notice, he uses it twice in verse 18, twice in verse 19, once in verse 20, and then verse 21 is really a description of what that reconciliation has brought about. And notice, too, Paul emphasizes a sense of mission that he had, right? Look at verse 18. God gave us the ministry of reconciliation. Verse 19, he committed to us the word of reconciliation. Verse 20, therefore we are ambassadors of Christ. Verse 20 again, as though God were making an appeal through us. It's in these verses, verses 18 to 21, we see the third motivation. Not only was Paul motivated by a reverence for Christ, not only was he motivated by the love of Christ, he was also motivated by the reconciliation through Christ. Reconciliation through Christ. And we don't have time to go into this incredible doctrine of reconciliation. It is a deep, deep pool that we're only going to be able to take a short dip in. But it will be a refreshing dip nonetheless. It's interesting, it turns out Paul is the only New Testament author to uh, use this word translated here as reconciliation. Katalasso is the word, actually. And it has the root idea, root meaning of, of exchange, of exchanging money or goods. And when it's used in the context of a relationship, it's this idea of changing, exchanging friendship for hostility. In fact, that last song that we sung this morning, it talks about, it uses this terminology. It really comes right out of this text. This idea now that we're no longer an enemy, but a friend. And brothers and sisters, this, this reconciliation that Paul speaks of, it, it goes beyond the doctrine of substitution, as wonderful as that is. It even goes beyond the doctrine of justification, that, that we are declared not guilty, as he talks about in verse 21, and given the righteousness of Christ. Certainly those are both Wonderful gospel truths that Christ substituted himself in our place and that that we have been justified as a result of that. We stand not guilty before God. But there's something about God's reconciliation that we have to stop here and pause for a moment and reflect because reconciliation is personal. It's personal. Picture, uh, if you will, a courtroom scene. We're standing before the judge. You and I are there. We're standing there. We're guilty of the crimes that we have been uh, accused of. We've been found guilty. We're awaiting sentencing. And now in this scene, the doctrine of justification would be this, the equivalent of the judge putting down his gavel and saying, not guilty. Not guilty. 
And then the basis of that declaration would be the doctrine of substitution. Someone has paid the punishment in your place. Now, the doctrine of reconciliation comes into this analogy in this way. And here's where it's incredible. It's when we realize the crimes that we have committed, the crimes you and I were guilty of, the crimes that we were getting ready to receive a just punishment for, that those crimes had been committed against the very judge himself. So that the very judge, reconciliation means that that judge, he not only says not guilty, he not only says not guilty on the basis of what Jesus has done on your behalf, but he comes down off of his bench and he extends his hand to you in friendship. And more than that, he says, come live with me. You are my own. That's reconciliation. It's a wonderful doctrine. And this is what Paul is talking about here. That God is extending the hand of friendship to sinners. To those who are his enemies, it's that welcoming to sit at his table. Right? It's, it's one thing to be told, okay, I'm not against you anymore. I won't punish you. It's quite another to be invited in. And again, remember, who was it that caused the hostility? It was us. Again, Romans 5.8, while we were sinners, Christ died for us. Romans 5.10, while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through his Son. We were the sinners. We were the enemies. We were the ones guilty of treason. And the gospel declares that not only is amnesty being offered, not only have we been given a pardon, not only are we being forgiven, but we're being made a friend. Again, Jesus told his disciples, I call you friends. I mean, ponder that for a minute. Let it sink in. All that we've done against God, all the sin that we've committed, I remember things I said and did. It's it's shameful. Things I said about God. And that He would offer peace. That He would welcome us in friendship. You know, there's one more thing. You know, normally it's the offending party that should go to the one offended and seek peace, right? Is that what God did? I'm just up here waiting. When are they going to come and ask me for forgiveness? When are they going to realize what they've done wrong? Is that what the text says? No, we're not the ones that sought reconciliation. We are not the ones that pursued peace. In fact, Acts, the book of Acts says that we, we don't even seek for him. Romans 3 talks about that. All have turned aside, together become useless. There's none who seeks for God. We weren't the ones that pursued this reconciliation. It was God who did it. Look again at verse 18. All these things, all what things? Everything he's talking about here in regards to salvation, they are from God who reconciled us. Verse 19, God was reconciling the world. Verse 21, God made him who knew no sin. Who's the subject there of those verbs? Who's the subject? You're still with me, right? God is, right? God is the one who took action. He is the one who did it. In fact, we could not take any action. There's nothing we could do. Nothing we could do to make it right. No good deed, no apology, no good work to cover our sin. Nothing we could do to bring about peace. And again, honestly, we didn't even care to. It was God, it is God, who brings reconciliation. 
Murray Harris, New Testament commentator, says this, Reconciliation does not occur apart from God or in spite of God, but because of God. The question is, how could that reconciliation be made possible? How in the world could God's wrath, a just wrath against our sin, how could that be appeased? How could a sinner be declared righteous before a holy God? Look again at verse 18. God reconciled us to himself. How? How? Through Christ. Verse 19, God was in Christ reconciling the world. Verse 20, he made him, that is Christ, to be sin on our behalf. Again, there's only one way for reconciliation to happen, right? There's only one means. There's only one way that our sins, that your sins and mine, will not be held against us. There's only one way to be forgiven. And it's not something we figured out. It's not something we initiated. How could this come about? How could it happen? Only for the Son of God to come as a man and offer himself. That was the only way for Jesus Christ to take upon himself the punishment you and I deserved. The only way this could happen was if the Son of Man became the sin bearer of man. And that's the idea being expressed here in verse 21, that Jesus became the the sin bearer. But, But even more than that, he took upon himself the guilt for our sin to such an extent that Paul even uses this terminology, he made him who knew no sin to be sin. Or literally, he made him who knew no sin, sin. Now, that doesn't mean Jesus was made a sinner. He just said he he knew no sin. So he's not talking about that. What he's saying here is Jesus was treated as if he was one. And more than that, he was treated as a great sinner. When he hung upon the cross, he wasn't just taking upon himself the sins of one or two people, but countless millions. He suffered the equivalent of countless millions of sinners. Of all the elect in all human history, those sins were placed upon him at that moment on the cross. And he was treated as if he had committed not one lifetime of sin, but millions. 1 Peter 2.24, right? says, he, bore, he himself bore our sins, plural, on the cross. Isaiah 53.5 says, He was pierced through for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. All of us, any who are in Christ, each and every sin. He made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf. (laughs) The familiarity with that verse, I think, often prevents us from really recognizing the significance of it. What a declaration. He made him who knew no sin. Sin. On our behalf. So that we might become the righteousness of God in Him. That's, of course, known as the great exchange. And I love how J. Vernon McGee put it. I don't know if I can match his his accent. But, you know, he, he took my hell down here that I might have his heaven up yonder. That was the idea. Up yonder, for those of you in the West here, that's a term for far far away, distant place. But more than that, more than heaven... We were given the righteousness of Christ. We were given the the ticket to be there. It's not just that our sins were removed, but we also had to be given His righteous life. 
And that right standing before God only comes through faith in Christ. That's what Paul said later in Philippians 3.9 when he said, He was found in Christ, not having a righteousness of my own derived from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ. The righteousness comes from God on the basis of faith. And reconciliation is extended only in that way, on the basis of faith. On the basis of trusting in Christ. Now, I don't know everyone here. I don't know what brought you here today, necessarily. I don't know where all of you are at in relationship to the Lord Jesus Christ. But as we talk about this wonderful truth of reconciliation... Like Paul, I I have to stop and plead with you, appeal to you, beg you even, is the word that Paul uses. Have you put your complete trust in the Lord Jesus Christ? Only you can answer this question. Have you repented and believed? That is, have you expressed a desire to turn from that sin the sin that continues on, and put your trust in the Lord Jesus Christ, recognizing that He's the only one that can pay for that sin. He's the only one that can deliver you from that sin. He's the only one who can ensure eternal life through what He has done. And notice, I I didn't ask you if you were a Christian. I didn't ask you if you read the Bible regularly or pray regularly. I, I, I didn't ask you if you go to church. I didn't ask you if you prayed some prayer when you were younger to receive Jesus in your heart. But friend, is there evidence in your life that there's been a change? We see that here in this text. Do you have a different purpose now that you want to live for Him? Yes, it's a challenge and it's a struggle, but is that your desire? Are you a new creature? Have you been transformed? Do you look at people differently now? Again, if not, I plead with you, be reconciled. Only you can answer these questions. And these are the kinds of questions that I was pondering when I realized and came to a point where I, I, go, I was calling myself a Christian, but I realized I'm not. Because these desires to please Christ weren't in my heart. In fact, it was just the opposite. I'd gone to church, I'd prayed, I'd done all that stuff. But I wasn't saved. I wasn't reconciled. So please, please, again, I, I beg you, Give consideration to the condition of your soul. If you are reconciled, not only have you received the blessings of that reconciliation, but now you are compelled to proclaim it. That's what we see with Paul, right? He recognized the commission that he had. God gave us a ministry of reconciliation, verse 18. Verse 19, he committed to us. The word of reconciliation, verse 20, we are ambassadors, ambassadors for Christ. Verse 20 again, as though God were making an appeal through us. And here I think in this text, the we and the us are specifically in reference to Paul. Again, the context of this letter is he's defending his apostleship and the mission that Christ had given him. But don't miss the connection, though, between the experience of reconciliation and the need to proclaim it. Again, we have been given a commission by the Lord Jesus Christ in Matthew 28, right? Commission given first to his disciples, then to the church, and hence to us. When we truly understand what this reconciliation is, we should be motivated to tell others about it, right? What an incredible message from an incredible Savior. 
So again, beloved, out of reverence for Christ, because of his love for us, the love of Christ, and because of the reconciliation through Christ, is my prayer that, that I, that the leaders here, and that we as a church would be motivated to his mission, both here and abroad. Amen? On the campus of Wheaton College, there's a plaque. It's dedicated to one of its graduates, the missionary I mentioned earlier, Jim Elliott. He was graduated there in 1949. At the bottom of the plaque are words from this passage. For the love of Christ controls us or constraineth us. They use the King James. That's on the bottom of the plaque. Above that passage are these words. Because of the Great Commission, Ed and Jim, together with Nathaniel Saint, Roger Udarian, and Peter Fleming, went to the mission field with willing for anything, anywhere, regardless of the cost. They chose the jungles of Ecuador, inhabited by the Alca Indians. For generations, all strangers were killed by these Indians. After many days of patient preparation and devout prayer, the missionaries made the first friendly contact known to history with the Alcas. On January 8, 1956, the five missionaries were brutally slain, martyrs for the love of God. You know, just a few months after he graduated, uh, Jim Elliott wrote this in his journal as he was preparing to go on the mission field. He is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. Christ is worth the sacrifice. His message is worth the sacrifice. And those souls who are without Christ, they're worth the sacrifice. Let's pray. Oh Lord, we are moved by your servant, Paul. Humbled, sobered, perhaps even feeling some guilt and conviction and seeing his example, and seeing example of Jim Elliott and Elizabeth Elliott and John Patton and so many others. Lord, who sacrificed so much. We're humbled by these things, but Lord, let us not live in a place of guilt or conviction, but Lord, use what motivated Paul to motivate us to be about the Great Commission. And use that, Lord, in us as a church to be even more fervently um, compelled and, and convinced and, and moved to uh, support many gospel-centered ministries both here and abroad. Lord, focus us on your mission. Let us not get distracted. Let us not live for ourselves, but for you who died and rose again on our behalf. Let us remember we are a new creature, that we've been reborn, and that, God, you... You are worthy. Lord Jesus, you are worthy. We thank you. Amen. Scripture quotations taken from the New American Standard Bible. Copyright by the Lockman Foundation.